Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Competitive Enablement Show. I'm your host, Adam McQueen, and in today's episode, I was joined by David Primer, the best-selling author of Sell the Way You Buy and the founder of Cerebral Selling, and Alex Cook, a sales leader at Clue for another edition of CE Live. David and Alex covered the five rules of selling against your competitor, and the lessons shared are applicable whether you're directly in sales or you're in charge of enabling your reps to sell against the competition. Uh, we do these live episodes on a monthly basis. They're a ton of fun, so make sure to keep your eyes peeled for our next episode, which will be in early May. A little bit of housekeeping first before we get into the episode. As always, we greatly appreciate it if you could subscribe to the pod and leave us a review. Also got some fancy pants new branding for the Coffee and Compete newsletter. So if you're looking for competitive strategies in five minutes or less, make sure to check it out in the show notes as well. All right, with that all said, let's get into today's episode. All right, everyone that is dropping in, let me know where you're coming in from. We, the most exotic location last um, CE Live was Jamaica. So I want to see if we can top that. If anyone's Burgundy, Tracy, nice. Uh, Tracy, I always feel like you're coming in from somewhere pretty cool. You got Houston, Orlando, Eugene. Tough to top. I know. Burgundy might be Nashville. Greensboro, North Carolina, not as cool as Jamaica. It's pretty cool. Exotic Vancouver, British Columbia. I've got, if anyone, apologies on the audio here. There's like a wind tunnel happening out in in Vancouver. I don't know what's going on. There's like whistling noises. I swear that I don't know how it's happened, but it's, if you hear some noises in my, on my end, my bad. Um, All right. So we get into this as people are starting to trickle in. For, the, for those of you that are joining Competitive Enablement Live for the first time, thank you for joining us. It's awesome. Uh, I'm going to do a little bit of housekeeping, and then I'll introduce the people that you're actually here for. So first of all, this is a live session, so engagement is encouraged. Drop your questions in the chat at any point. Um, and if you agree with us, you disagree with us, you think that was a great point, you're... I think last last uh, episode, we actually had just a great back and forth with someone that originally kind of went against what we were chatting about and ended up being one of the best parts of the episode. So give us all your thoughts in the chat. And also, if you feel comfortable, um, throw your cameras on. There's nothing I enjoy less than doing these webinars with faceless names in the audience and you're just talking into the void. So it's great to see everyone on the session. If not, that's okay too. Um, as well, if you're comfortable joining us on stage to ask your question or even give a point, um, just drop it in the chat. Ben, our producer, the brains of the operation, is in the background, and he'll drop you a message, a DM, if you're comfortable coming on camera or not. And lastly, this will be recorded. It will be sent to you, and it will also be on our podcast feed. So, yes. This will all be in your inbox, on the podcast, on YouTube. We'll get that all to you. So if you can't make it through the whole session, um, it will still be there for you. So with, with that said, I want to introduce our guests. First of all, as well, I would like to know, we've got a couple polls this time, and I want to know the, the audience, maybe some of the demographic we've got. So Ben, do you want to chuck up the first poll? I just want to know what roles the people that are in attendance, um, yeah, what, what department you're a part of. So we've kind of got sales, 
if you're doing running competitive full-time or you're running competitive, but you're also doing a lot of other responsibilities or something completely different. So let me know where you're coming in from and we can, I just kind of curious on this one. All right, poll submitted. Ben, can we see some uh, numeros? You want to see the results already? As people are answering, I, I want to see. We have 85% of the participants have answered. So we do have a good sample. Nice. We're going to let it run for 14 more seconds here. It's got to be 14. a full minute for the poll. That's the arbitrary rule I've just made. Okay, Ben, the, the overlord of arbitrary rules. Okay, as that poll is getting answered, I will introduce our guests because I've already filibusted for long enough here. Oh, nice. We have, a, we have a really good mix here. We've got sales, 29% sales, 29% doing compete full-time, 22% running compete alongside other responsibilities, and 20% others. So we've got a nice mix, which is great for this session because today we're getting inside the mind of a seller. And my first guest that I am joined by is none other than Alex Cook, sales leader at Clue. Alex and I, we started at Clue roughly the same time, hey, about 18 months ago. And since joining as an account executive, then Alex has excelled into a sales leadership position. Uh, we can also confirm that Alex is a friend of marketing. Not only has he led sessions with the PMA at the CE Summit that we ran last year, he's also been a source of hundreds of ideas, content ideas for our team. So I'm stoked to have you with us today, Alex. Likewise, Adam. Thank you. And we're also joined by David Primer, the founder of Cerebral Selling and the author of the best-selling book, Sell the Way You Buy, a modern approach to sales that actually works even on you. Um, if you don't know if David, you probably have. That's why you're here. David is an expert in sales and sales leadership. He's been published in the Harvard Business Review, as well as Forbes, Entrepreneur, and Inc. Magazines. He's led top performing sales teams at high growth startups, a former VP at Salesforce, where he created the Sales Leadership Academy program. Also known as the sales professor, David is an adjunct lecturer at the Smith School of Business at Queen's University, great university, and the London Business School. David, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's great to be here. I, I'm not a friend of marketing. I, I kind of like that intro. I, all of a sudden, I feel a little... <laughs> That was that was a good one. Like Alex that. Alex is known as also Moonlights as our CMO occasionally. Nice, right, Alex? I mean, that's that's a nice way of putting it. Yeah, I feel like the marketing <laughs> team gives me a hard time about my my advice and my ideas that I like to contribute to the team. They're good ideas. They're great ideas. Yeah. All right, should we get right and, into the meat of this conversation? Should we dive right in? Because we're getting. As this conversation and as the session was laid out, it's the five rules of selling against your competitors. But first off, before we get into that, Alex, you swear by David's book. So what about it has resonated most with you as a seller? Yeah, and I feel like I talk about it all the time internally. So David, this will be the, the first time you hear me say this out loud, but I feel like... Uh... <laughs> For me, I read that book at the right time. I was uh, probably, I had, similar to you, I had spent uh, a good chunk of my career working at Salesforce, and this was probably about six months after I had left when I when I read your book. And 
I, Salesforce in particular, had given me a lot of great sales training. I had gotten really comfortable at it and it worked very, very well at what they did. So I came into Clue expecting to just rinse, repeat and do the same thing and do it better. And it was hard. And I realized very quickly that um, selling in the space that Clue is, which is very much a new category, is a lot more about inspiring empathy and excitement. And I don't want to say, I mean, yeah, it kind of debunked some of the stuff that I used to think were the rules of thumb from Salesforce in terms of um, like business cases, selling on value, and a few of the things that I used to think you don't run a sales cycle without. So a couple of pieces from your book that really resonated with me were that piece around um, how do you actually relate to how buyers from a consumer standpoint buy? So what's the ROI on your last vacation? There is no ROI on my last vacation, but I had a great time. <laughs> so very much an emotional decision and how can we implement that in a B2B world? And then also tactical things that, that very much were easy to implement that I hadn't found in a lot of books that I had read before. I, I have never been, been more seen than when you wrote about sellers often using the phrase, does that make sense? That is, that, that's my filler word. I ask it 10 times a meeting. And because I was called out reading your book, I kind of switched that to what's resonated the most so far, or how does this compare to what you're envisioning? And it's kind of just like three discovery now. So very much that one minor tweak that I took away changed my discovery in all my meetings. I love it. Well, in fact, it's funny, you know, I, I don't know if this is kind of related or not, but uh, a couple of weeks ago or a few weeks ago, I did a, so I do these weekly, like little mini trainings in my Facebook group, which is free. People can join. I can, I can tell you about it afterwards, but uh, we talked about how to present your business case. And I said, you know, oftentimes people think about a business case like this multifaceted, there's like ROI and all this detail and assumptions and all that kind of stuff. But I said, like the most important thing and really the only thing is whether or not the customer believes that what we say is going to happen is going to happen, Right. And the belief is like a binary feeling. It's either a one or a zero. Either you believe or you don't believe, right? And so when we talk about like ROI or reading a book, sometimes people feel that there's going to be this like big epiphany moment where like I took this thing and that thing and then I applied them in the field and I got this return on investment. But sometimes the kind of way to think about it is like fast forward a year. Was there one tactic, you know, like one thing that you took away to your point about like maybe not saying, does that make sense? as your kind of your standard thing, like maybe that, like it just, it just jerked the wheel of the cruise ship by like two degrees. And now like a year later, you're in a completely different spot, right? So that's another way of kind of thinking about it. all of the things that we're going to talk about today, the five things, the 10 things, whatever it is, you don't have to do everything. Maybe it's just one thing that you pick up that you do for like the next six months that puts you on a different trajectory. And there's no moment of epiphany. It's not like, oh, I fell in love with Alex on April 5th. But like a year from now, we've been dating a long time. Like now I'm in love with Alex. I don't know when it happened, but it happened, right? So that's that's the way I think about return on investment. Did, Adam, did I bring that all like together somehow? There? I was, you're a professional at this. That was a perfect segue. <laughs> all right. So we're going to get into the competitive selling of it all. And as, as mentioned with the audience, we've got sellers are in the field. So there's going to be some tactical advice that you can apply right away from, from what David's sharing. But there's also an interesting piece here with folks leading competitive that are in charge of trying to enable numerous reps across the field on their competitors. And I think some of the lessons from David are going to be applicable to you as well. So there's five rules from this article of yours, and we're going to dive into each one. And the first rule is do discovery before responding to your competitors. Because in your article, you mentioned that there's this sales instinct to immediately jump right into this competitive positioning monologue the moment an objection is raised. So why is that an actual reaction and what's wrong with that approach? 
Well, it's it's interesting. Like this reaction, you know, what what Gong? If you people who use Gong or Chorus, like the conversational analytics tools, you can actually see this in like the, the chronology of the conversation. So whether it's like an objection, like oh, it's too expensive, or it'll never work here, or like oh, but what about this competitor? When we hear something, it kind of triggers our brains, and we get into like defensive mode. Just it's just like a, a natural instinct, and then we get into what's sometimes referred to as the objection handling monologue, and we can tell this. Because there's like a period of time, 20 seconds, 30 seconds, whatever it is, that we can actually see on the charts and on the graphs and all that kind of stuff. When a, when a question is raised or objections raised, that we just launch right into it. And in many cases, we, we get defensive because we don't want to lose the deal. In some cases, we think we've heard this before and we just like, we just want to like cut it off, right? But sometimes we don't know where, and I say like a competitive objection is just like any other objection. You know, like, oh, what about Clue? Oh, what about it's too expensive? Like, it's all the same thing. Right. And so, you know, we need to oftentimes as sellers, like slow down in the conversation and just, you know, like, let's explore, like, t tell me more. And it could be just something simple as like, tell me more about it. But what happens is if we launch right into the monologue, we could end up just either addressing the wrong objection or addressing it in the wrong way. Or maybe it wasn't even an objection in the first place. And then we got into all defensive mode for no reason. Right. So whenever and actually the data says, because, you know, I'm a big fan of like the science and the data. I love the data from Gong that says top performing sales reps will respond to objections with a question 54% of the time versus average performers, which is like 30 something percent of the time. And that, so, you know, with lower performers, even worse. So just get in the habit of exploring the objection around the competition before you dive into whatever it is you're going to say. I also feel like just building on that, so many sellers are afraid of objections, especially newer sellers. They come in, they're memorizing the responses to objections, and they've got their list of here's what you say if a client says X, Y, Z. And when you get into that mode, it's very easy to fall into that defensive mode defensive mode because you memorize the answer. And building on what you were saying about you don't know if it's going to resonate with your response, I feel like if you don't ask a question, a lot of the times an objection is the best thing you can be thrown in a sales cycle. Because if they're not objecting, they're, they probably aren't interested. And if they are objecting, maybe that's the thing that they care about because there's a reason they objected to it. So I feel like by answering that objection with a question, that's really where you open up the opportunity to find out what matters and, and understand if, if that specific objection is important. Because if it is and you don't do it, that's a problem. And if it's not, but a competitor said maybe they should ask you about it, then the client's not going to care whether you do it or not. Absolutely. And I'll, I'll give you another one is that, you know, sometimes we get an objection like someone says it's too expensive, right? Or let's say, because Jody, you know, she loves the, the relationship analogy. So let's say I ask Alex out on a date, okay? And he, this is actually what I do in my objection. I'm it's a real life example, Alex by the way. Real life example. Real life yeah. example, yeah. Where I'm trying, you know, I'm trying to enact my whole, you know, anyway. So so I say to Alex, I'm like, hey, Alex, man, like, you know, we met, you know, at this, uh, you know, this sales event the other week. Maybe we should hang out. Like, you wanted me, you want to hang out on Saturday night? Okay. Now, Alex doesn't want to, hang out. He doesn't want to go with me. He doesn't want to go on a date. Okay. What does he say? What would you say, Alex? Uh, sorry, Dave. I actually have plans Saturday night. Oh, you have plans. Okay. I get it. You know, you're a busy guy, very popular. I think I, I probably chose right. Right. So I say, okay. Um, what about next Saturday night? Right. And so what do I do? I start like, I start testing you. Meanwhile, you know that the answer is you don't want to go out with me. And you're just saying these things like the red herring to get me to bite and, and, and try to like get me off the line, right? And so it's the same thing with a competitive threat. Maybe you're saying, ah, you know, this competitor, like they've been around a little bit longer, like we've, we're already using them. So we're just going to stick with them. And it's just kind of like the safe choice. And that might be what you're saying to spare my feelings, 
right? And even if I'm going to lose, right, or if I am losing, I still want to know what's going on with this competitor, right? So this idea of like taking a step back and understanding that whatever someone says doesn't necessarily reflect what, what the meaning is below. And the way we clarify is by asking questions, doing some discovery. I will never forget uh, a couple of years ago, I was, in, I was in a cycle where I was brought into the conversation after the client had essentially done their evaluation. They had basically selected a vendor, but were told by procurement they needed to evaluate alternatives. And uh, so I came in, in, in the initial meeting, um, ready for that conversation. Initial meeting went well, and then they messaged me afterwards saying, can we hop on a call? I've got some questions and concerns that have come up since then. And I'm like, sure, easy. You've just got a few questions. Let's do it. And they came to me and just started rhyming off this list of questions. And now looking back on it, and I've reflected on this meeting quite a bit over the last couple of years, uh, that was clearly a list of questions that was handed to them by a competitor of mine. And because they just came at the purpose of the meeting was we've got questions for you. I treated the meeting that way and went right into that defensive instinct where the whole meeting was them asking a question, me responding to it. And we just went through like six of them. And then the meeting ended because that was all that was on the agenda. And I immediately that day went into, okay, I did not do a good job in that meeting, reflected on it, tried to back, tried to recover from it unsuccessfully. I did lose that deal transparently. But um, that to me is kind of the horror moment that always makes me want to ask a question when I'm thrown an objection as I'm constantly reminded of that specific meeting. And, you know, it's funny when, when a customer asks us questions in that, that way, it's kind of like dis disarming. It's like, oh, the customer's engaged. They have questions, Right. But it's like, if you got an RFP, and I don't know how many people that do RFPs out there anymore. Like I, I used to do RFPs all the time at, at my first company. You know, you get an RFP and there's all these questions that are obviously framed in the context of another solution. Like it sets off alarm bells immediately. And, but, and I would say for those of you who are in RFP land doing the same thing, when you get these lists of questions that look like they were written for someone else, do the same thing. Hey, can we get on a call? I just want to kind of make sure I understand the, the, thematically what's going on with these questions. And really what I'm trying to do as a seller is I'm trying to figure out, am I, am I winning or losing here? Am I, do I have a shot? Like, where are these coming from? Like, I, I get what these questions are, but I want to go, I want to go deeper. So same thing with competitive stuff, RFPs, discovery, objections in general, good, good first practice. On this discovery side too, I think um, doing this discovery, not only on your buyer's needs and not only on like competitors and like the objections they might be seeding, but I think there's an interesting point as well, Alex, that kind of relates to the product marketers and sort of the compete leads in this is that sellers are actually, they're closest to the action. They're in the field, right? So they have the ability, these discovery questions, they have the ability to be uncovering information on the competitors that folks in that product marketing and compete space are going to find intensely valuable. So from, from your end, how do you sort of coach sellers to ask the right questions that will actually unveil, un, unveil competitive information? This is a good question. I feel like in client conversations, this is one that a lot of the product marketers, sales enablement leaders, even sales leaders overlook. Everybody comes to us and they want to enable their reps with what to say in response to something. They want, here's the questions you should ask to put them on the defensive. Here's how you should respond to what they say when they're putting you on the defensive. And they're asking people for um, objection handling, feature comparisons, what's our value edge in this specific conversation. And then a lot of the times people will even certify reps on how to uh, respond to competitor objections and that kind of thing. And I feel like those rubrics for certification are so often built on execution on what your value edge is and what the, the messaging is. What a lot of people overlook, but I've seen people do it well, is um, is framing them on the rest of, or enabling them on the rest of this, which is if, if you're looking to enable a rep and they want your help on how to respond to objection, 
they actually don't want your help on that objection. They want your help on how to manage that specific conversation. And that's not just the response, that's everything surrounding the response. So what I find works well there is when you're thinking about enabling your reps, and maybe use Dave's five-step framework as your actual rubric, rubric but um, incorporate more than just the response to that competitive messaging and your value edge into it. So think about um, what's the question that you're going to ask in response to the question that they ask and that kind of thing. And one of the things, Dave, in your book, uh, you refer to selling at Salesforce as earning your MBA in sales. I like to think of selling at Clue as earning your MBA in, comp in competing, basically, uh, because people expect us to be good at competing. We're selling competitive intelligence software. If we're not good at it, why would they believe that our software can help with it? And um, one of the things our competitive enablement manager, Brando, or internal nickname, Brando, Brandon ran for us recently. He did an objection handling enablement for the whole team, but it didn't just include, okay, what's the response? It was very much, here's the situation you're put in, and then you were put on the spot, and it was, okay, here's the objection. How do I do discovery around this? How do I qualify the importance of this? Maybe I reframe it. Maybe I share the value edge, whatever it may be, depending on the objection. And then here's a client that was in your shoes before, and here's a client that made the switch. So I think um, in terms of coaching reps, that's what I would focus on is don't coach them on the response in a competitive situation, coach them on how to manage that customer conversation. David, Absolutely. do you have anything to add on that, on that kind of coaching as well, in terms of these doing the discovery and handling these objections? For sure. Well, like I think what Alex said is 100% correct. I think one of the greatest sins that we commit when we enable reps on uh, an objection handling playbook is we, we kind of teach them to do like the column A, column B exercise, right? Column A is customer says this, column B is like you say this in return. And in a way, like when people, and, and, and I'd say like, that's a big sin when we do discovery, when we do messaging, like we just tell people exactly what to say. We don't leave any room for kind of improvisation. And what it comes off as is a non-human feeling conversation, right? And I would say like back to, so everything Alex said is fantastic. We, it's, it's like, what would happen if someone punched you in the face? Like if, if different people punched us in the face, we would all do different things. And, and maybe we're all trained martial artists and we would all get out of it, but we would all do something different and it would still be okay, right? So it's okay to kind of improvise a little bit. But I'd also say, you know, one of the things when it comes to responding, and this might lead into kind of, you know, tactic number two a little bit, is this idea of like the tone. And even if we give the reps the right words, and this is actually a huge enablement issue that I see all the time in my practice, is like we give people the words to say, what we don't give them is the right tone and like how those words should sound. So for example, let, let's say Alex and I are at Salesforce and now we're competing in a deal against Microsoft and the customer's like, um, yeah, so, you know, we're looking at you, but you know, we're, we're coming in with Microsoft too. Like Microsoft is looking pretty good. Now imagine the words on the page said, what do you like about Microsoft? Right? Like think about how, uh, jerky, if I can say it in a nice way, like I could sound, if I tried to say those words, like, ah, what do you like about Microsoft, right? Like I could say it like a jerk or I could be like, oh, okay, no, look, you know, fair enough. Like, what do you like about Microsoft, right? And it's the same words, but it'll produce a different emotion in your mind and make it more or less likely <laughs> that you want to respond, which is what we want, right? So tone, super important when it comes to all manners of sales execution. This sort of leads, as you mentioned there, into kind of rule number two, what you have is don't bash, be diplomatic. And Ben, I believe we have a poll on this one, correct? We do. Have you been involved in a deal where a competitor explicit, explicitly bashed you? Um, yes or no? And when I say bash, I think like overset the boundaries in your opinion. 
So let's do we do we have the the sixty seconds timer on this one as well, Ben? Well, we're at twenty seconds, but I, I'm open to to making it a bit shorter for for the sake of let's time. Let's get a little let's get a little live result here on that. I might say you know, and, and from a definition of bash, it could be um, you know uh, a competitor said something that was factually even factually incorrect about you, whether it was intentional or not. Because mm -hmm. sometimes people say things like, oh, like Clue isn't available in French, right? And like, and it, and it is because you just came out with it, but I didn't know that. But I still mm -hmm. told the customer that you weren't available in French. And so sometimes that that's kind of as the sellers, we we find ourselves on the receiving end of that from customers. We're like, oh, like uh, Clue said that you're not available in French. You know, like they didn't, it was not a bash per se, but it's, they're still talking about us. What one of the things... One of the things on that note, and sorry to derail for a moment, Adam, but Dave, something you said in a previous conversation really resonated with me, kind of on that concept in terms of, uh, you just said we're not available in French and actually we are available in French. Uh, a lot of our clients that we're speaking with, they, they're looking for feature comparisons, um, which has a time and a place, not gonna argue that they're valuable, but um, what I'm wondering is, what I really liked about what you said about feature comparisons was uh, around how, products are evolving every day. And if you're going to message with the product differentiator and that feature that's different, there's, you might be right, you might be wrong, but it could change day over day. And as soon as you say the wrong thing, you've lost the customer trust and maybe even lost that deal because you said it. And the reward is not greater than the risk in terms of being able to differentiate that way. What would you say on that? Absolutely, yeah. Like, you know, especially in the world of high growth B2B technology, most, you know, kind of technical obstacles or product obstacles will eventually be overcome. And you may not be the first to, you know, from a competitive standpoint to find out about that. So oftentimes, unless it's something like huge and glaring and overt, like I would kind of stay away from like the feature comparison. Also, I will tell you, because there's a, a tactic that, um, that I teach from an objection handling standpoint, but it's based on, you know, experience, is that sometimes as a, as a, as a, a technology company, there's a product feature that your competitors have that you specifically did not build or implement for a specific reason. And, and we would actually find that, you know, for example, my um, third startup. So we were a feedback coaching and recognition platform. This is, we ended up being acquired by Salesforce. That's how I got to work there. And so uh, think about feedback coaching and recognition at work. If I'm managing a team, I want to help you get that. But the tools that a lot of companies use to get that in the past were like annual performance reviews. So one of the questions we would often get from, you know, our customers or, you know, kind of competitive questions would be, hey, do you have like a language checker in your feedback system? Or like, what's a language checker? Like, well, you know, like if I call Alex a jerk in the system, it's going to filter that out. Because again, where is this coming from? People who used to run, you know, performance reviews often needed that for a legal compliance and that needed to be, you know, kind of, you know, taken out. Because our solution worked fundamentally differently, not only did we not have that feature, but we, we had really good reasons why we didn't have that feature and why that feature no longer provided you the protection that you thought it did. So again, like even when you get into like questions around feature comparison, it doesn't mean that because, you know, feature comparisons are being thrown around that you need to have those features, right? In fact, it's a huge opportunity for you to educate the customer on why you think that feature is a bad idea and why you're actually moving away from it. Right. And, and I say like it could be a competitor saying those things or it could be the customer themselves. So for example, customer moving from like a legacy platform who the, that's the competitor in that instance. And they might say like, hey, Alex, does Clue have a report that shows me the number of competitors by industry, by whatever? And Alex is sitting there thinking like, why, why do you need that? And they're like, well, the system we have today, like it gives that to us and we find it helpful. I'm like, 
Now, Alex has now an opportunity to educate me on why people are actually moving away from those kinds of reports and why what Clue has is, is better. You know what I'm saying? So there's, there's all sorts of opportunity in there. I, I love what you're saying there. And I feel like in that specific example, after, after doing discovery and qualification, the way that I'll often, uh, I'll often handle that specific type where they're coming to you with something very specific that they want that you don't have, but you don't have it on purpose. So to your example of maybe your competitor has this feature and they want this feature, but you don't have it on purpose. I feel like that's something with one of our competitors in our space that we come up with quite frequently. We've taken two very different approaches to a specific thing. And the way that I will often get in front of that, which I think is actually something without directly talking about a competitor, because I, I, I wouldn't bring them up intentionally in this type of scenario, but I'll often use the customer's language and talk about what they have in like a first meeting. Be like, some of our competitors or players in our space do X, Y, Z. At Clue, we believe ABC. So instead have implemented DEF, whatever it may be. And then we've recently had a client that actually switched because they found X, Y, Z too noisy, whatever it may be. So something like that. I love it. You're using my inoculation. Well, it's not my inoculation tactic, but from, <laughs> from, from my objection alley. So we talked about this idea of inoculation, which is from a competitive standpoint, is to say that if you know that 80 or 90% of the time in a given situation, meaning you're up against a particular competitor or in a particular competitor in a specific industry, or you're working with a customer that's a little smaller than the customers you typically work with and you think cost is going to be like an issue, whenever you know like 80 or 90% of the time that thing is going to come up, that, that competitive threat is going to come up, you would be well advised to bring it up and address it and resolve it to the customer satisfaction before they do right? Because that's what's going to take the sting out of it. So I love it. That's what that's what Alex is saying there. And bonus points, because what you're doing is not only you're saying, you know, uh, you're, you're addressing it to the satisfaction, but you're using like a foundational belief. Like the reason why we didn't invest in those features is because, you know, we believe that, you know, the features that make it into our product, like have to scrap and claw their way onto the roadmap. Because one of the biggest problems with software today is like feature overload. And we believe that yada, yada, yada. So now, not only have you addressed the competitive threat or you brought it up you know, early, but now you've brought it down to like the feelings level, like the belief, right? And I might say, yeah, you know what? I'm like Alex, I'm like Clue. I also believe that like things need to fight their way to get onto the roadmap and like, you know, like there's too many features and products today. So now we are aligned emotionally, which is a lot obviously stronger than being aligned from a feature perspective. We are aligned oh, emotionally now. We can, re we can revisit the Saturday date night conversation. <laughs> All right, <now>. good, good. <laughs> Invite coming. Uh, let's get into. I want to dig a little bit more on this inoculation theory. I had it for later in the session, but now it's now it's here. Let's let's talk about it because I think you mentioned as well that there's there's a lot of nuance. There's a lot you can go that can go wrong with kind of getting ahead of this image. Like, so what are some of the pitfalls that you've seen with folks that are trying to get ahead of a competitive? Um, objection or something like that oh and there was our question have you heard of the wow. inoculation theory ben before? is like right on the ball here this is awesome <laughs> i didn't even know we we're going to talk about this sorry yes david so what what is um what are some of the pitfalls then with with how are people doing that wrong because i think that is it's not dangerous waters but if you know there's an objection coming up regularly uh getting ahead of it almost addressing your perceived weakness can feel dangerous i guess for a seller no it can. And certainly if you bring up an objection that doesn't exist, like that's also not good, right? Like you don't want to bring up cost if the customer wasn't thinking that you're expensive compared to the comp competition. And now you're like, yeah, some people think we're too expensive. And we're like, customers like, oh, hold on a second. 
maybe I should, you know, double click into this and, you know, so, so the idea is that using inoculation and, and I actually kind of think about objection handling. I have a 10, 10 tactic scale in my objection handling playbook and inoculation is number nine, not just, and it's one of my favorites, not just because it's sophisticated and requires finesse in the right tone, but there's a risk in using it. So that's why from a competitive standpoint, if you're going to inoculate your customer, which is basically, again, bringing up the competitive threat or the issue before the customer does, you have to be confident that it's going to come up anyways. Like you, there's like an 80% chance or greater, it's going to come up anyways. And you would have saved yourself the kind of the trouble and pain having the customer bring it up. So this requires a little bit of know-how, but I would say for those of you who are in sales enablement, this is where you can, you know, you can use and leverage your team to triangulate the data points, right? So if you're tracking, like, for example, in your CRM, your Salesforce, whatever, if you're tracking like the deals by size, by industry, the competitors that might come up, you can say like, yeah, like we found in, in deals that look like this, this competitor comes up, you know, a ton of times. And so therefore it's, it's worth it for you to kind of bring up the, you know, objection before the customer does. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to like, you know, just go and lay it out there. You can also kind of nibble around the edges. So, hey, Alex, like, you know, if you're looking at our solution, I suspect if you're like most of our clients, you're probably, especially in the healthcare industry, you're probably looking at this customer, this, this vendor, that vendor, that vendor, you know, are you by any chance? Like, so I don't have to throw the competitive inoculation before I do a little bit of that discovery as well. Yeah. yeah, and even building on that, using one of your other theories in, in, in what you just said there in terms of you're probably also looking at that, maybe you rephrase it as most of the clients that I speak with or most of the product marketers that I speak with when they're talking to us and they're in healthcare, they typically are looking at a few different solutions and this is kind of what their evaluation looks like. So kind of rephrasing it about their peers as well, mm -hmm. um, which I know is another point that you commonly make. And by the way, you know, one of the things now, Alex, you know, good. So if you notice one thing about Alex, he's speaking with a lot of conviction. Right. Like I, everything Alex says, I believe. Right. And he's, you know, he's been at, at Clue for 18 months with Adam, which is like 100 years in like high growth companies. Right. But let, what, what happens? Let, let's say Ben just started at Clue today. Right. And now he's like reading the objection handling playbook and he starts saying things like, well, you know, what I found is that 80 percent of the time. And it's like Ben, Ben has no credibility. He just started here. So when he says things like, oh, what I found it's not true. He hasn't found anything, right? And if someone tells him to use those kinds of words, I'm going to be able to tell that Ben is kind of new and uncertain and tentative and hesitant. This is like, a, this is a real thing, right? And, and Alex knows at Salesforce, I used to run small business sales for the Eastern US, lots of young, enthusiastic sales reps. But I would oftentimes have reps with lots of uh, pipeline, lots of activity, lots of calls and no pipeline. And part of the issue is this concept I refer to as like experience asymmetry, which is like this imbalance. It's like, imagine, you know, when, when my, when my teenage daughter comes to me, she, what she did the other day, she's on, on her volleyball team in high school. And she says, she's like, um, so she, she forgot that she had an early morning practice that she wanted me to take her to. She's like, um, so, so dad, I, um, I'm like, I feel defensive immediately. Right. Like just by the way you're asking, it's like you're asking me something that you think I'm going to say no to and I can feel it. So when Ben is new and he says something like, well, what I found, like you found nothing. Right. So so Alex, tons of conviction. What you can what you can do to change that kind of competitive narrative is just put the, the voice in the, uh, the give the give the voice to the people who have the credibility. So 
your customers have credibility, your founders have credibility, the, the longevity of your company has credibility. So Ben could have said something or Alex could have said something like, hey, hey look, you know, we, we've been working in the competitive space for, for years. And what our customers have told us is that, right? And, and now I'm not assuming any personal credibility. I'm just putting the credibility onto like, you know, our, our founder, you know, started this company because they believe that. And so now it's not on me. So whenever you're in doubt, whenever you're, you're afraid of kind of being able to manifest that like conviction and authenticity on demand, especially if you're new, just, and I, we all believe what Alex said, just reframe the context, right? In the credibility to which, you know, the entities to which that credibility belongs. So that's a little side to back to like the, these things make a difference, like the tone, the approach, the conviction. I can tell if you believe in what you're saying or not as a customer, mm -hmm. like we just feel it. It's, it speaks to that tone and the idea of becoming that trusted advisor, it feels like, that there's some level of credibility. And I like that you mentioned that the credibility doesn't have to come from yourself. And I know you mentioned it as, and we just kind of touched on it, and this would be point three, is phrasing the narrative in the voice of your customer or industry experts is moving away from that eye phrasing. And you don't need to earn credibility through what you think. You have plenty of resources at your disposal to build that credibility as well. I didn't even realize it was point number three. I was just going off on a rant, <laughs> but you're absolutely right. Is that, yeah. And, and, you know, this is something that you can actually, as a new rep, you can study as an enablement, you know, person, like you can put those kinds of words in the mouths of your reps, like tell them like, all right, here's how I would position, you know, what we believe or how we, you know, position ourselves com competitively. Cause again, yeah, like you lack personal credibility unless mm -hmm. you do have personal. And if you have personal credibility, Awesome. But for most of us, unless you like, maybe you've been a comp you're in competitive intelligence in the marketing department at a big company, right? And you're calling like, that would be amazing. But if you don't, these are like simple hacks you can do to manifest conviction. There's actually, I have a question for you then, Alex, on this point, because I've spoken to a, quite a few of our, our customers on the podcast, different people in product marketing, and a lot of them actually talk about uh, like you mentioned, there, like sale, like with a big sales force is ramping new reps on the competition effectively. And I think it kind of speaks to this sort of the eye phrasing and using the voice of the customer. But would you have any other advice on how, how you're seeing compete leads do that effectively, like ramping themselves in the competition? Like what is the good social proof and what's the, like, don't, don't go that route when you're, when you're trying to, I don't know, speak confidently against the competition. Yeah, and I really love Dave's uh, Dave's point on using the voice of your customer for that kind of thing, especially when you're newer. We do um, often we find actually Clue before my time hosted um, hosted a session with the head of product marketing for Marketing Cloud at Salesforce, and Salesforce used to do this week long boot camp for new hires in San Francisco, and then they would have competitive as part of that section. And his point of view on that, don't know if they still do it or not, was. At that point, when people are ramping, they've got information overload. They're trying to learn personas, they're learning product, they're learning internal processes. And maybe that's not the time and the place for uh, competitive enablement because it's something that they're not yet ready for and it's gonna go in one ear and out the other. And this I think is where a couple of things come into practice. So one, this is where I feel like in terms of the people that are preparing competitive messaging, this is why it's so important not to just have, they say this, you say this, that's side by side, table that Dave talked about, because the people haven't yet fully practiced, fully gotten used to doing this kind of customer conversation, and they're going to fall into that defense mode that we started the conversation with today. So where I see it coming in from a ramping standpoint is I feel like enablement leads, product marketing leads need to be able to craft their messaging 
in a way that touches on all five of these points and not just the response, because chances are, if you did teach the salesperson about it when they were onboarding and when they were ramping, they probably haven't used it yet and they don't remember it. So they're going to look at the messaging and they're going to respond to the question that was asked. 100%. There's actually an article I have on my site that I actually wrote back at Salesforce. It's called the top five reasons why new sales reps fail. And one of the things is exactly what Alex said, like we teach them the wrong thing at the wrong time. You know, like sometimes reps say, well, I need to know about the product, I need to know like how to negotiate the, the deals at the end of the day. And my thing is like, you should be so lucky as to start talking about product and to, and to get to a negotiation, right? The first thing is you're going to have an initial conversation with the customer where they're going to decide if they even give a crap about what it is you're saying, right? And so like, why don't you just get good at describing what we do at the company, <laughs> right? And it's actually, it's kind of funny. I mean, I definitely, I talked to my, you know, a lot of VPs of sales in, in my practice and I'm, I'm doing discovery with them and, you know, we're talking and I'm like, so like, so clue, like, what do you, what do you do? And they, they start like telling me and they're like, well, okay, we're a platform that does competitive da, 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 and they go through this whole narrative and then they pause and I'm like, and then they, and then they kind of like, they say, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think I did that so well. Like, it's one of these questions what, that we get asked so often. Like, what is it that you do that we get so desensitized? And especially in technology, the answer that we typically give is like, oh, we're a platform. Like, no one cares about a platform. Like, no one, no one is buying you because you're a platform, right? Like, they have a problem that they're looking to solve. And so all they want to hear is like, I deal with this problem every day, right? Like, the, the fact that it's a platform, you know, even better, right? But like, you have to earn the right to, to talk about your platform. So I, I agree, like when it comes to you know, the, the competition and how do we enable our people, I think it's actually more important to get really good at describing what it is that you do, you know, before you start, you know, layering, you know, even though, look, competition is what we do here at Clue, right? It's really important. From an enablement standpoint, it's not the first thing that people need to know in order to add value to customers. I also think just thinking through this a little bit more, because I agree with that. I feel like where some of our clients do this well in terms of a crafting messaging standpoint, and so beyond the ramping idea, but into just ongoing competitive enablement is creating content or messaging that has all of these different components in it. So building in the, the entire customer conversation scenario of that, that scenario that that rep is going to end up in that they haven't yet been in before, which is they just got a competitor objection whatever it may be. So instead of just having that table, you first put, okay, they said this, ask this. They, and then depending on the response, qualify with something like this. Depending on that, you're gonna reframe or you're gonna do this. And kind of like this decision tree matrix of uh, this is how you're gonna navigate that customer conversation. And that is something that some of our clients do very well. Some of them are still struggling with in terms of that side-by-side -side competitive kind of table but uh, is definitely something that we see implemented that works really well in terms of giving the rep something that's going to resonate with them because it's a step-by-step -step of what they actually need in that moment. And that's what they're going to follow. But then also it's a little bit more in the voice of the customer because it's not just the response. It's the whole scenario that that customer is going to be thinking about. I think to your point too, Alex, as well, you've mentioned, I think you referred to Brandon's enablement session earlier about kind of using discovery is like, it's not only providing the resources as well, but like how you deliver it to how you're training reps to to be comfortable in those kind of using these different resources or seeing it in action and not just reading it off of the script, I think as well as kind of one of the other layers to, to, to this point. Fourth rule, should we get into this one? Also, if you have any questions about anything around competitive selling right now as well, we've kind of gone down a bunch of different tangents here. Feel free to drop them in the chat. You can hop on camera as well, ask Alex or David any questions you have, but 
Rule number four is when you're talking about your competitors, using it as a qualification opportunity. So David, you've talked about using the statement, you know, this isn't for everyone as an amazing lightning rod when you're selling against competitors. So why is that? Yeah, well, look, sometimes when you're getting too many competitive threats and object, and I say competitive threats, objections, like, well, what about this com- you know, company? What about that company? Oh, it's too expensive. I'm not sure it'll work here. And then, you know, at a certain point, you're just like, we don't have to do this. Like we, if, you know, if you're just telling me these things, if I'm asking, okay, now Jody's going to be happy. So if I go ask Alex out on a date again, and he's like, oh, I'm sorry, David, I'm busy Saturday. I'm like, hey, no worries, man. Like, what, what about next Saturday? And he's like, oh, I'm, I'm busy then too, right? And then, and then I said, well, Alex, why don't we, you know, I'm going to use my tactic number four, turn the future into the past and say like, Alex, why don't you pick a date? like that maybe we're that you're available and then, you know, go into the future, pick that date, let me know what it is. And then we'll go out then. Right. And Alex is like, you know what, David, it's kind of a busy, you know, busy quarter. There's a lot going on, you know, and, and now I'm getting the impression that like, maybe he doesn't want to go out with me. And this is where I kind of bring it in. And I'm kind of taking the hints. I'm just like, you know what, Alex, if you're saying, you know, if you're saying these things to spare my feelings, it's, it's okay. Like I'm not for everyone. And we, and if you don't, if you're not feeling it, it's like, we don't have to go out. Like, that's okay. Right. It's a tactic I call validate the fit. And, and one of the biggest problems is that, especially in sales, like we don't want to lose deals. Uh, and so what happens is we put on our happy years and we, we kind of push deals along in the, the pipeline longer than they should. And, you know, m- the data that I have tells me that the best reps are the ones that lose fast right? I have this, this post on my, on my website, it's called sell more by losing faster. And there's, it's data backed, right? Like the reps that actually push the, the bad fit deals out earlier, end up focusing on the good fit customers and end up doing better um, for lots of reasons. But also like, think about even just as your business, there's lots of companies, com- you know, business that you could probably win that you have no business winning, meaning like those customers will not be happy. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll gum up your customer support process. They'll take your product roadmap in a direction that you didn't want it to go in. And they're just bad. Right. So from a competitive standpoint, if you're getting a lot of this like competitive lack, it's okay to say to the customer, like, Hey, look, this isn't for everyone. We, we totally get it. And and if it's not for you, like that's okay too. You know, the customers that really find value in clue are the ones that believe that, X, right? And I dropped the belief statement. So, so this is really, really important. If you're getting too many of these competitive threats, like be mindful, like you are not for everyone. You will lose more deals than you're going to win. And it's okay to cut the customer loose. But once again, I say like, you have to do it with the right tone, right? So like the example I, I often give, and I think it's like in, in my YouTube channel, I have this example. Is like, let's say I was a personal trainer and Alex comes into me for you know, personal training stuff. And, and he says, you know, so how much is this in the end of the day? And I say like, Alex, you know, so um, uh, to get the results you're looking for, uh, you got to come in four times a week and it's going to be like a thousand dollars a month. And Alex like has a fit, like falls out of his seat and he's like, whoa, that's a lot of money. It's more than I was thinking to spend. Like I could go, I could go down the street to this other gym, $10 fitness, whatever it is. And for 10 bucks a month, I could get A, B and C, Right. Now, again, like what I really want to say to Alex is like, hey, look, that's okay. I mean, look, I, we offer different things and we're not for everyone. And if we're not for you, like that's okay too. Um, And what I'm going to then see is whether or not Alex really wants me. Does he really want to train with me? Or does he really just want to pick that other vendor the whole time? And now I'm giving him the out and now he's taking the out. But tone, super important, right? If I say, hey, look, Alex, 
I get it, man. Like this isn't for everyone. This is the, this training package is only for people who care about themselves and care about their health and care about their families and care about being for their, there for their families for a long time. But if that's not you, that's okay. Right? Like I sound like a jerk when I say it like that. Right. <laughs> but if I said it, Hey, look, you know, we, at my company, like we've been working with organizations like you from the beginning to deliver the result that you're looking for. But we believe in order to deliver that result, it's not just the software, right? It's the software, it's the services, it's the, it's the support, it's the R&D that we make the investment into. And for that reason, we give you this all-in price that's more expensive than, than if you look at, you know, competitor A, B, and C, they might be less expensive. Now, look, I can't say, you know, what they're investing into or not, but like, but we know, because we've been doing this for some time, to deliver the result that you're looking for, that's what it takes. But we also know it's not for everyone. Some people are okay, like, paying less, going in a different direction. And if that's for you, like, that's okay too. Like at the, at the end of the day, I don't want you to spend any money with us and then not be happy, right? Like it, almost feels as, it almost feels as if it's also like a positioning exercise as well, doing that. Of course. And then that's actually, it's funny. So this is, this is going to be my topic for this week's, uh, so my Facebook group is called the Sales Lab. So I go, I do a Sales Lab live every week where I go and I talk about so this is actually something I, I talk about in my messaging session, which is sometimes people think that your pitch or whatever it is that you do needs to be inserted into like the initial conversation or like the initial like, you know, prospecting outreach. But as you saw Alex do, right, he incorporated a belief statement at the end of the inoculation tactic that he used. And like, this is, the, you know, like he's already the Jedi master because this is what I'm saying is like, if I were to teach you how to defend yourself, like at a karate class. I wouldn't just teach you like one kick, one punch. And I say, when someone punches, you do this and then you're done, right? Like someone would punch you and then you would do something and then you would respond and then see what they do. And you would do, it's like a fight, right? And so being able to, to um, improvise, like you know, we're talking about jazz here, like, but improvise and, and dovetail a belief statement around your message and what you believe as a company onto the end of an objection handle to help create that emotional connection with the customer. Like that is the next level um, tactical approach you need to be doing, right? So absolutely, messaging tactics are not just relegated to, you know, pitch fests. You can use them all over the show and you should. One of the things you said there, not about the messaging tactics, but in terms of um, the, the identifying if it's a mutual fit and bringing a customer in that's not a fit for what you do. And you could win those deals in a lot of circumstances. I find some of the most successful meetings I've had are where you and and seen are where you incorporate that belief statement early when you identify that a company is not a great fit for you, but it's a or sorry the people you're speaking with are not a great fit for you, but that company is a great fit for you. I find sometimes some of the most successful way you can handle that meeting is telling them that upfront, giving them permission to tell you when it seems like a not fit, but saying, hey, at Clue, our approach is a little bit different than this. I'm not convinced that we're going to be a good fit for you, but I want to make sure you decide that on your own. Let me walk you through how our clients use our platform. You can tell me what you think. And uh, if, it, if it's not a fit, at least we're able to figure that out in X amount of times. And I've seen so many meetings where you run it like that, where you just instantly built so much trust. And sometimes you go through it and it turns out it is a great fit and you were wrong. And other times I've definitely seen it where you're not at all a fit and maybe you even recommend an alternative for them. And then they're just stoked to work with you. They introduce you to the people at their company that are a good fit and you're off to the races with a different part of the organization. So Earning that uh, trust up front. And I, I feel like by telling them if they're not a good fit and not just saying, giving them permission to say no, but if you think they're not a good fit, tell them that. 
Absolutely. Like, and, and that requires as a sales rep, you gotta, you know, you gotta represent the company and know that, Hey, look, if I bring this customer in, even though I might make my quota, it's going to have downstream negative repercussions. And also just adopting that mindset, which is really, you can tell Alex has read my book, but like adopting that mindset of like the healthy skeptic, the data shows that when we give people permission to say no, it's more likely that they're going to say yes, or at least be honest with us. Right. And so the problem is, especially in sales, it's the end of the month, end of the quarter. And we're trying to like scrounge up all the deals we can. We call the customers and like, they can feel it. Like they can feel when it's the end of our month, the end of our quarter. And so my, my best advice in the mindset, I'm going to pull a Ricky Bobby here. People know Talladega Nights. If, you, if, you've, if you've seen the movie Talladega Nights and you see the scene where uh, Will Ferrell is driving in the car with the cougar and then his, <laughs> and then his, his father it's like, what? There's a damn cougar in the car. He's like, I know I put that cougar there. And he's like, you know, you got to learn how to drive with the fear. Right. And he's like, there ain't nothing more fearful than driving with a live cougar in the car. So he says, so if you, but if you're calm, right, that magnificent beast will be calm too. Right. But if you're, but so I, what I take to that is like in sales, if it's the end of your month, end of the quarter, and there's this pressure and you haven't made your quota and you're, and you're putting that pressure on the, the customer, they can feel it, right? And so the idea is if you if they feel like there's no pressure, it's like this example I often give, you walk into like the gap in the mall, right? The store and someone says, eh, excuse me, sir. Like, welcome to the gap. Is there something I can help you find? And then you, what do you say, Alex? No, I'm okay. I'm just looking around. No, just I'm just, yeah, I'm just looking around because I don't want to give you consent to do all your sleazy sales stuff to me by saying like, <laughs> yes, right? But if, so what do they do? They, they're just, they're there folding clothes, and they're like, hey, look, I'm Alex. Welcome to the gap. Hey, look, I gotta, I just gotta get some more shirts from the back. But you know, if you if you have any questions, you know, I'll be back in a couple of minutes, right? And they do that on purpose so that you feel comfortable, like they're not there to pounce on you, right? And the same thing happens. There's so many good things that happen from a competitive standpoint, from the standpoint of like keeping our pipeline and our our company healthy when we just we just chill out a little bit. Hard to easy to say, hard to do. I know in sales, but a lot of benefits. We are running, putting a cougar in my car as soon as possible. <laughs> as I that is the, that is the tactical advice. Yeah. I'm not they telling you to put, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, I feel a lawsuit coming at day two pretty that's fast. Right. You did say if you take one thing from the session, that works. Yes. And I guess that's the one cougars thing. Cougars in cars. That's the take-home <laughs> message, yeah. Uh, we are running up on time. And the, we, we touched on the final point about being honest around sort of the inoculation theory, sort of getting ahead of some of your perceived weaknesses. I did want to, um, someone did have a question, Sam, I did want to offer him the opportunity to ask his question with both of you, because that's what, that's what we're here for. So Sam, are you, are you online? Sam had and... to run to, oh, oh sorry, Sam, you're back. You're back. Sam had yep. to run to a, uh, a child situation, but uh, he's back. <laughs> Little one. He started crying. Um, <laughs> he's like three weeks old. So he's still new. Um, mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you a question. Oh, my wife's trying to take him. Hold on a second. Um, uh, for positioning, like how would you describe or define positioning? Because I've re- read so many different things, so many different uh, definitions of what it is or how to use it to your benefit. And for transparency, I'm our product marketing manager who also does competitive analysis and also does um, sales enablement. So got lots of hats on. Um, and then also running strategy for marketing. So it's fun. But I'm just trying to get an understanding of that. And this has been great. So thank you guys so much for putting this on. This is a great webinar. No, right. Well, Appreciate Sam, this, Sam. Sam, can I ask you, like, what do you think positioning is? Like, what are the what are the definitions that are bouncing around in your head that you're wrestling with? It, 
like that's the, that's the other thing that's never really had like a clear one. So it's like how the, your position, your competitor is the more expensive one. You position yourself as a cheaper, uh, more viable option for smaller businesses or for enterprise or how, which one, which type of companies, your business, your software, your service would be good for. Uh, and then but taking that information and translating that more into you can hear them. Uh, translating that more into like your marketing and for your sales enablement. Like that's where I'm going to say I'm having trouble, but some guidance would be great. So how did, so your question is like, how do I take the kind of competitive perspective and, and distill it down to something that people in the field could use? Maybe is that the problem you're experiencing or what, what's the. Not necessarily the people in the field. Cause we don't have too, too many sellers and I'm kind of moonlighting doing some selling as well. Um, X sales role for like five years. So transitions a little bit easier, but uh, more like positioning your service more and like on your website, in your um, white papers, your uh, the things that we use to, to pitch to sell. Not necessarily just on the phone talking to somebody or uh, on Zoom. 100%. Well, I think, you know, and I'll, hopefully this will answer your question. You let me know, but there's sometimes like a, a different approach that we take in marketing and, 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 I'm going to do, I'm going to pull another Ricky Bobby here and say, with all due respect <laughs> to product marketing, right? Like what happens is, and this is, you know, I don't know if Alex, if you remember this back from the Salesforce days, but like sometimes product marketing cooks up words and phrases that are okay-ish on a website. Well, maybe I, I might give it a pass, but they're not words that human beings would say to one another if we were having a conversation, like the classic Salesforce circa 2015 when uh, you ask them like, what does Salesforce do? We would say like, oh, well, we help our customers connect with their customers in all new ways, right? And like human beings don't say that to each other, right? So, so you know, I think it's actually quite important with, I think where Sam's getting at, which is like actually doing a good job back to what I was saying earlier, of like, this, what is it that you do? And when you're describing what you do, and maybe that's what positioning is, like it helps your customer have an emotional connection to the problem that you solve, right? Like. Again, it doesn't matter if you fully understand the sum total of everything. Oh, we're a platform that has this and that. Like, it doesn't matter. The only thing that matters when the customer says what you, you know, what do you do is that they lean in to whatever you say and say, oh, that's really interesting. Tell me more. And so sometimes from a positioning standpoint, like for example, and I haven't changed this in years. I started Cerebral Selling, by the way, just to, as a website in my last VP role, just to you know, store my content. And the tagline on the front page of the website, it says, you ever wonder why you don't like talking to salespeople? Now, like, this is what I do. Like, I, I work with, like, why would, I'm assuming that you're going to say that you don't like talking to salespeople, right? Even if you're in sales and that's who my audience is. So my audience is for salespeople who realize that people love to buy things, but they don't want to talk to them. And so, like, in a way, if you believe what I believe, that like, yeah, people love to buy things. They hate talking to salespeople. And, and do you ever wonder why that is? You're going to lean in and you're going to say, this is really interesting. Tell me more, right? Versus if I said, oh, like we're another training platform and a vendor and we have an online thing. And I wrote a book, like no one cares about that, right? They care about the problem. So I'm very, a big fan when it comes to positioning. Um, and, and by the way, like you can use this from a competitive standpoint as well. So when a customer says like, what do you do? Or like, how do you stack up to, you know, this other, you know, solution, you could say something, well, you know, look at our company, we believe that the most important thing when it comes to the software is, is that your people actually use it. And, and you know that like, no matter how great the software is, that, you know, there's like, you know, uh, like, you know, a uh, body trails of software that never ended up getting used. 
we really focus on how to, you know, how do we get our hands in the, the software in the hands of people and have them use it. That's where we really, really focus. And so again, like you don't know what it is I'm selling or pitching or it's a platform, but now you're leading with this positioning statement around, you know, this emotional connection to the problem. Anyway, so that's kind of, you know, Sam, hopefully that answers your question, but like what, what appears on your website, what your reps say, it should be really simple and should speak to the problem and should create that rapid emotional connection in the mind of your ideal customer. If that's positioning, then I'm, I'm down with that. Thanks. I don't know if anyone else wants to talk. I do have another question, but I don't want to monopolize everything. time. I was just going to build on what Dave was saying there because I really, I completely relate to the belief statement and it's something that I implement quite frequently and have seen work very well in terms of uh, at Clue we believe. And, and that creates that emotional connection. Taking that one step further, one of our top clients has created, um, they, they call, they've created this culture at their company around customer-centric competitive intelligence. And it's kind of this voice of the customer first, and then you take your value wedge and apply it to whatever that company believes. So kind of building on what Dave was saying there in terms of at Clue, we believe. If you take that one step further and combine a few of the topics that we talked about today, maybe you make it about the clients. And instead of we believe, maybe it's like the clients that are a good fit for Clue or they use our platform really well, they believe X, Y, Z. So taking kind of combining everything full circle, you got that belief statement, you're connect, creating that emotional connection, but then you're also relating and connecting to their peers too. So combining a few of the different things. And I love it. Cause like in all of that, Alex is not talking about, oh, we're a platform and it's built on this. And, you know, and people log in and we have a mobile app. Like people don't care about that. Like initially, like there'll be a time to to care about that. But the first thing they're thinking about is like, is this for me? Yes or no? Do I want to learn more? Yes or no? It's like a newspaper article. Like the, the, the subject line or the headline is meant to, you know, get you to read the first sentence and the first sentence is the second sentence and so on. By the way, baby as a prop is fantastic. I think you should use it more <laughs> in your calls. You will, you will win all competitive deals. Forget 100%. about it. Just bring, bring yeah. Sam <laughs> yeah, to all your meetings. Thank you so much for the question, Sam. That was awesome. Um, all right. We, we have got a little bit over time here. Um, I appreciate everyone for sticking this through as well past the hour mark. Um, David, I appreciate you taking the time with us. Uh, you only got outdone by the cute baby at the end, but you were really, this this has been (laughs) awesome to have you, your insights, your experiences, the analogies, um, where can people, where can people reach you? Yeah, I mean, so I've been accused of giving away too much stuff for free. So you can find me. Uh, my website is cerebralselling.com. I have a YouTube channel, Instagram, all by the same title. The book is called Sell the Way You Buy. You can get it anywhere. It's on audiobook as well. If you feel like listening to six and a half hours of me reading my own book. And uh, the Facebook group, which is free, is called The Sales Lab. And you can uh, join that as well. Awesome. And Alex, where can people reach you as well? Uh, LinkedIn's probably the easiest or, or ping whoever sent you this email and they've got all my contact information. We can do it. All right. Thank you both so much. And thank you all for attending. This is great as always. And recording will be sent by tomorrow, I believe, at the latest.